Today is January 15, 2021. The American Thoracic Society approved a clinical practice guideline regarding pharmacologic treatment of tobacco dependence in adults. This guideline was published in May 2020 in the American Journal of Respiratory and Clinical Care Medicine. Seven recommendations about initial medications used in smoking cessation were given. Five are strong recommendations and two are conditional recommendations. Okay, let's start with the strong recommendation for tobacco-dependent adults in whom treatment is being initiated. Okay, so the first one is varenicline over a nicotine patch is recommended. So be prepared to counsel your patients about the relative safety and efficacy of varenicline compared with a nicotine patch. The second one is that varenicline over bupropion is recommended. Number three is in patients who are not ready to quit smoking, treatment with varenicline rather than waiting until patients are ready to stop tobacco use is recommended. When you have patients with comorbid psychiatric conditions, including substance use disorder, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, and or bipolar disorder, varenicline over a nicotine patch is recommended. And lastly, for tobacco-dependent adults for whom treatment is being initiated with a controller, extended duration or greater than 12 weeks over standard duration, which is 6 to 12 weeks, therapy is recommended. A controller is a medication with a delayed onset of effect that reduces the frequency and intensity of smoking, like varenicline, whereas a reliever is a medication with acute effect to reduce cravings, like a nicotine gum. And what are the conditional recommendations, Alisa? So the first one is that varenicline plus a nicotine patch over varenicline by itself is suggested. And number seven, varenicline over electronic cigarettes is recommended. There are serious adverse effects of e-cigarettes that have been reported. This recommendation will be reevaluated if these reports continue. This is Rio Bravo Q Week, your weekly dose of knowledge brought to you by the Rio Bravo Family Medicine Residency Program from Bakersfield, California. Our program is affiliated with UCLA and sponsored by Clinica Sierra Vista. Let us be your healthcare home. You catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. No bees, no honey. No work, no money. Honey is sweet, but bees sting. Be like the honeybee. Anything it eats is clean. Anything it drops is sweet. And the branch it sits upon does not break. When you go in search of honey, you must expect to be stung by the bees. Life is the flower for which love is the honey. Today, we have a special episode to honor those with a sweet tooth. We will talk about the ultimate nature candy, honey. Yes, we will talk anything related to honey in medicine. But you might wonder, what is honey? It is a sticky, sweet, clear, yellowish-brown fluid made by bees. How? You might wonder, well, they collect nectar in their honey stomach, or what they call the crop. And as you might be guessing, they create honey by vomiting this digested nectar. And I also read 
that after they vomit their nectar, it requires a specific temperature, a specific amount of air to make the honey. So that's very interesting. Oh, and they create the, the air with their wings. Wow. That that, that cool. sounds a lot less delicious than what honey usually tastes like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, some people really love honey and some people really hate honey. So, oh. yeah. My wife it. doesn't like honey. Oh, really? That's weird. I really like it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, me too. Sometimes I feel like I get a little allergies, though, when I, when I eat honey from oh. some areas. Okay, this is for my four-year-old grandson and my four-year-old granddaughter. What kind of bees make milk? Boobies. Okay, maybe not for my grandson. Uh, what kind of bees live in graveyards? Zombies. <laughs> oh, interestingly, I'm allergic to honey, the bee wax. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I still can eat honey, no problem. <laughs> Good. So let's start with uh, talking about honeycomb lungs. So we're going to talk anything related to honey in, in medicine. So let's start with honeycomb lungs. Yes, honeycomb lungs. Um, this is something that many medical students and residents might hear uh, for the first time and think, huh, what are people talking about? Unfortunately, hearing that a patient has honeycomb, uh, honeycomb lung is not all sweet news. Um, honeycomb lung is indicative of end-stage pulmonary fibrosis. And many disorders such as idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, sarcoidosis, hypersensitivity pneumonia, and eosinophilic granuloma can progress to end-stage fibrosis, but cannot be detected by pathologists at this stage of the disease. For that reason, biopsy of extensive honeycomb lung is not helpful and should be avoided. This honey, honeycomb lung appearance of lungs in CT has been found to be common in COVID-19. Yes, honeycombing fibrosis seems to follow ground glass opacities in COVID-19 patients. Uh, honeycombing are small cystic spaces with irregular thickened walls made out of fibrous tissue. And you can see it in the CT scan. And this is something interesting. I had a conversation with a friend a couple of weeks ago. My friend lives in Venezuela, and she told me a very bold statement. She said, a CT scan is more sensitive than PCR to detect COVID-19. So that puzzled me, and I had to look it up. And, and this is the American College of Radiology statement about CT scan, use of CT scan to diagnose COVID-19. It says, Vital testing remains the only specific method for diagnosis of COVID-19. Confirmation with the vital test is required, even if radiologic findings are suggestive of COVID-19 on checks X-ray or CT scan. CT scan is reserved for hospitalized, symptomatic patients with specific clinical indications for CT scan. So do not use CT scan for COVID-19 diagnosis, according to the American College of Radiology. Why do bees have sticky hair? Why? Because they use honeycombs. <laughs> Our next term is honeymoon cystitis. Now, why would you ruin a honeymoon, which is supposed to be fun, with the not-so-fun word cystitis? Well, because this uncomfortable infection is common in sexually active women, and it makes sense that it can occur more often in newlyweds during a much-anticipated vacation. <laughs> Yeah, recurrent UTI 
UTIs are common in sexually active women. Anatomy is to blame, of course, for this problem. And sexual intercourse may cause local irritation of the erythromyelitis and lead to cystitis. In this case, honeymoon cystitis. I see. Um, Honey-colored crusts are present in impetigo. This one is not as pretty as it sounds. Think of honey equals pus for this honey-colored crust. Um, impetigo occurs most commonly on the face and can present with bulla. Uh, honey-colored crust, erythema, edema, and exudate. Impetigo. So when you think about honey-colored crust, think about impetigo. So now a very important topic, honey in infants. I know that some grandmas, they like giving honey, honey to infants, to newborns. So let's read what it is about, you know, what the evidence is. Because uh, honey in infants must not be given to them, to infants. And here is why. Infant botulism occurs when Clostridium botulinum, the spores of that bacteria, they can live in honey and are ingested and colonize the GI tract, and they released a wicked toxin, which is called botulinum toxin. In the US, most cases are thought to result from ingestion of environmental dust and soil containing these uh, spores, the Clostridium botulinum spores. Remember, a bee that will not stop eating will eventually become a little chubby. <laughs> And the incidence of reported cases of infant botulism is highest in Utah, Pennsylvania, and California, um, in which the soil botulinum, botulinum spore counts are high. Do you know that Utah is called the beehive state? No, I actually don't know. <laughs> yeah. Infant botulism has been associated with the ingestion of raw honey. But telling people don't give honey to your babies has not changed the incidence of infant botulism in the U.S. Oh. Interesting. Hey, Dr. Saito, there is a patient with botulism. Oh, I hope it took care of his wrinkles. Oh, my God. So funny, Dr. Saito. <laughs> That's cruel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, honey has a high fructose content, and it is part of the FODMAP, fermentable oligodimonosaccharides and polyols. A diet low in FODMAPs is recommended in patients with IBS. So if you have IBS, honey is likely not the best sweetener for you. Now, let's talk about honeymoon phase of type 1 diabetes. A few weeks after the diagnosis and initiation of insulin therapy, a period of decreasing exogenous insulin, such as the Lispro or Lantus or whatever it is that you're, in, you're injecting, um, the requirements um, decrease. Um, this is commonly referred to as the honeymoon or remission phase of diabetes. During this period, the remaining functional beta cells in your pancreas secrete some endogenous insulin, resulting in reduced exogenous requirements. So you give yourself less of the injectable insulin during this time. So basically, you are getting insulin and then your pancreas start producing more insulin and then you require less insulin yeah. injection. Yeah. Okay. So that's at the honeymoon phase of type type 1 diabetes. And actually I had a, a real case with this condition and I was really surprised. So let me tell you about him. He's a male 
He's in his mid-20s, and he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Oh, no, with diabetes, period. Let's say in October 2019. He was admitted to the ICU because of DKA. His A1C was more than 11. He was sent home after the ICU admission on insulin, and then in January 2020, he decided to stop insulin on his own without any recommendation from any doctor to see if he really needed it. Okay, so he came to me in July 2020. That was like six months or seven months after stopping it. And I freaked out. I was like, this guy's sugar is going to be at least 500. And his A1C is going to be probably double digits at least. My surprise was that his insulin, I mean, his glucose, not glucose, the A1C, guys. The (laughs) A1C was 5.3, not even on the range of diabetes. And that was without insulin. Wow. That's crazy. Wow. Um, Close monitoring of the blood glucose is critical as hypoglycemic episodes are likely if the insulin is not adjusted appropriately. As you can see, if this guy would have gone home and like had that insulin, he probably would have died, (laughs) right? right? Without the proper monitoring, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, Some clues that the honeymoon phase in type 1 diabetes may be ending are rising blood glucose levels, higher A1C, and increasing exogenous insulin need. That's why the monitoring that we're talking about is very, very important. Um, The duration of this phase is variable and it may last several months to several years. Yeah, so in in this guy that I was telling you about, I just told him, hey, we have to make sure that we monitor you because we don't know when when your diabetes is gonna come back. So let's talk now about folk medicine. This treatment has been known for centuries the use of honey in common cold. Honey is an option for treating cough in children who are older than one year old, remember the age, older than one year old, uh, with common cold symptoms. Honey can be given straight out of the bottle, you know, 0.5 to 1 teaspoon. It can be diluted in caffeine-free liquids like tea or juice, Um, Corn syrup may be substituted if honey is not available. Honey has a modest beneficial effect on nocturnal cough and is unlikely to be harmful in children who are older than one year old. Just as a reminder of what we covered earlier, honey should be avoided in children younger than one year because of the risk of botulism. How do bees get to school? On the school bus! (laughs) In a randomized trial, 300 children, 1 to 5 years of age, with upper respiratory infection and nocturnal cough, were assigned to receive a single dose of 10 grams of honey, uh, eucalyptus, citrus, or labiatae, I don't know if I'm saying that right, um, or placebo. Uh, they, they, what they used for placebo was a date extract similar to honey in appearance and taste, uh, and they would have to take this before bedtime. Then caregivers completed a symptom survey on the days before and after the intervention, and 270 children completed the study. Symptoms improved in all children after the intervention. However, children who received honey had greater mean improvement in cough frequency. It was a 1.85 versus a 1.0 points. Severity was 1.94 versus 0.99 
and bothersomeness was 2.16 versus 1.25 points than those who were who just got the placebo. So that's good news for the parents, I guess. Yeah. You, you know, when you have a, a little kid with cough, it can be very exhausting. And I can testify of that. Yeah. yeah. So adverse effects such as abdominal pain in this particular study, nausea, vomiting, occurred in five patients, approximately evenly distributed among each of the honey and the placebo groups. The findings of this trial were confirmed in a 2018 systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized trials. Mean difference in cough frequency was minus 1.62 with a 95% of co coefficient interval. And honey also reduced cough frequency compared with no treatment and diphenhydramine. Yeah, given the relative safety and low cost of honey, the World Health Organization and American Academy of Pediatrics suggest it as a potential treatment for URI in young children who are older, remember, older than one year. The American College of Chest Physicians suggests that honey is more effective than placebo for cough due to the common cold. Excellent. So, give honey to your older than one year old, you know, and avoid, of course, antitussives. Remember that those are not FDA approved to use in little children. So now we can talk about one of the favorite topics of Dr. Two. You can listen to our episode number six about wound care. And let's talk about the use of honey in wound care. Do you guys know that honey has been used since ancient times in the management of wounds? Honey has broad spectrum antimicrobial activity due to its high osmolarity and high concentration of hydrogen peroxide. What do you call a bee that lives in America? Wow. A, a USB. <laughs> Medical grade honey products are now available as gel, paste, and impregnated into adhesive, alginate, and colloid dressings. Based upon the results of systematic reviews evaluating honey to aid healing in a variety of wounds, there are insufficient data to provide any recommendations for the routine use of honey for all wound types. A specific wound types such as burns may benefit, whereas others such as chronic venous ulcers and ingrown toenails after surgery may not. Good. Use honey in some wounds, but in all of, not, not, not in all of them. So honey in chemoprophylaxis in partial thickness burns. So this is an interesting one. As we mentioned a couple of minutes ago, honey has a broad spectrum antimicrobial activity. Remember, high osmolarity and hydrogen peroxide content. Partial thickness burns are prone to rapid bacterial colonization, which can potentially become an invasive infection. It makes sense that we can use honey for partial thickness burns. Anything more significant than a sunburn or superficial burn, since those do not need topical antimicrobials. Normally, non-perfume moisturizing cream is all that is needed. Silver sulfadiazine can also be used but tends to delay healing. So modern hydrocolloid and silver impregnated dressings can be superior, but surprise, surprise, honey, the ancient wound medicine, is still an effective treatment. Great. I think we cover a lot of topics uh, now about honey. You know, we talked about honeycomb, honeycomb lungs, 
honeymoon cystitis, honey color crust in impetigo, honey in infants, honeymoon phase of type, type 1 diabetes, and honey in common cold, wound care, and burns. Yeah. So if you guys want to learn something or just review something about honey, just feel free to listen to our podcast so you can use it in your medical practice. You know, a tip that I found, honey can be stored indefinitely. So you can have honey forever. Yay. It doesn't get rotten. Because I have eaten very, very old honey. So that makes me feel a lot better. <laughs> and make sure that you buy real honey. There is a lot of honey that is just corn syrup. Oh, so, I didn't know that. Yeah. Make sure they buy high quality honey. What does a bee sit on? What? It's behind. <laughs> what? Speaking medical. Your tongue can say a lot about your health. Today, I will go over the medical term macroglossia, which means enlargement of the tongue. Symptoms associated with macroglossia may include drooling, speech impairment, difficulty eating, snoring, and airway obstruction. Macroglossia is an uncommon anatomical abnormality and is usually a sign of underlying condition. Some of the diseases associated with macroglossia are Down syndrome, hypothyroidism, tuberculosis, sarcoidosis, and angioedema. Examination often reveals an enlarged appearance on the lateral margins of the tongue caused by crowding against the teeth. It is important to consider macroglossia as a sign of underlying disorder and proceed with focused diagnostic testing, including possible biopsy. Treatment should be directed at the underlying disorder. Thanks for listening to Macroglossia and have a tongue-tastic day. Hi, I'm Dr. Rodriguez and I'm presenting the Medical Word of the Week. If you remember, in episode 28, we talk about presbyopia. So today, I will teach you about presbycusis. Presbycusis is just one form of hearing loss that happens as you age. Affects more than half of all adults by the time that they reach the age of 75. It's a progressive sensorineural hearing loss that mostly affects hearing on high-pitched sounds. That means that the person with presbycusis might have trouble hearing a bird chipping, phone ringing, crowded places, but still be able to hear a truck rumbling. Multiple factors can influence the onset and severity of presbycusis, including white rays, light, loud noises, autotoxins such as aminoglucosides, ear infections, smoking, and chronic disease like hypertension and diabetes. In a patient with presbycusis, an audiogram will show decreasing pure tone thresholds with relative preservation of word recognition. Even though hearing aids may offer some help, only a small percentage of, of patients actually receive effective treatment with amplification. Auditory rehabilitation, when available, is usually practiced in combination with hearing devices. 
For patients with severe presbycusis with poor response to conventional amplification, the cochlear implantation offers hopes to restore hearing. So remember, the word uh, of this week is presbycusis. Okay, Odaisy. So before you go, let me ask you a serious question. Many people told Beethoven that he would not make good music because he was deaf. But did he listen? Hi guys, so we're gonna have a new section. It's called Question of the Week. Uh, we're usually gonna have a question and we are gonna leave it open to any answers that you might wanna submit. You can submit any answer you want to rbresidency at clinicasierravista.org. So the question of this week is, since we are talking about honey, so what is the first treatment approach for type 2 diabetes? For example, for a patient who had polydipsia, polyuria for a few weeks and at your office had a random blood glucose of 210. Now, if you answer this question, we are going to choose the best answer and you're going to get a gift card. So it's money. <laughs> money, it's honey, money. <laughs> Now we conclude our episode number 37, Honey in Medicine. We started with an update on medications used for smoking cessation. Then Dr. Carranza and Dr. Ariaza presented medical conditions related to the word honey, and they explained evidence-based uses of honey in medicine. Dr. Rodriguez defined presbycusis and presbycusis, and future Dr. Zhang explained macroglossia. You may ask, what does smoking, honey, deafness, and big tongues have in common? The answer is family medicine. Remember, the question of the week is, what is the first treatment approach for type 2 diabetes? The listener with the best answer will receive a prize. Send your answer to our email at rbresidency at Thank you for listening to Rio Bravo Q Week. If you have any feedback about this podcast, please contact us by email at rbresidency at clinicaseravista.org or visit our website, riobravofmrp.org backslash qweek. This podcast was created with educational purposes only. Please visit your primary care physician for additional medical advice. This week, we thank Hector Ariaza, Claudia Carranza, Stephen Saito, Alyssa Dermogradician, Yodaisy Rodriguez, Zhen Zhang, Catherine Schlert, Gloria Villegas, Manuel Tu, and Gracie Pena. Audio by Sarajam Ruthia. See you next week.